Today is Friday, November 18th, 2016. I'm John Williams, reaching out to our old friend Thomas Jefferson. President Jefferson, are you there? Good day to you, my dear citizen. Well, post-election, President Jefferson, a lot of people are happy and a lot of people are suffering from anxiety. Parents are still fielding calls from their college kids, their kids who are in high school and couldn't even vote. And people are stressed about this. And it's not just the kids. It's the adults, too, say half the population. And, and, and I was wondering if in your era, this is more a personal question than a political one, but if you personally had any things that you would turn to that made you happy. I'm jogging more. My wife's thinking about baking bread. We're all coming up with things to <laughs> either distract us or sort of extract some of that energy that you have built up when you get real nervous, you know? I had three coping mechanisms with loss or with uh, political polarization. Um, they all involved um, Monticello. I would get back to my home farm up on the mountain there in the center of Virginia. And once I was there, I began to cheer up because I was away from the arena of all of the abuse and character assassination and, and partisanship. And so I would do a couple of things. I would garden, uh, puttering in the soil, um, planting turnips or um, pulling the tops off of, 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 of tomato shoots, um, experimenting with gardening. Those things always gave me a, a deep sense of happiness, and they, and they made me feel that I was authentic, authentic as someone out of the ancient world of Homer and Virgil, you know, some, somebody that, that still understood the, the, the primary business of life, which is to, uh, to let the earth grow food for us. And the other thing that I did was spend time with my daughter, Martha, my only surviving daughter by then, and my grandchildren. And there's almost no happiness greater than being a patriarch uh, who has access to uh, spirited grandchildren. And several of them were intellectuals. Uh, several of them were athletes. Uh, but I said it's the only time that a philosopher can get down and play horse games uh, with a uh, a human being is is with his grandchildren. And the third thing I did was count. I made lists. Uh, I was always happiest when there, when I had order, and so I would maybe reorganize my library, reclassify it, or or change the uh, the way my wine was stored. But the the best thing for me was to do something that involved uh, an intense grid or a set of lists. That's all really good. I'm just drinking more, by the way. I'm not gardening or I don't have any grandkids and um, I haven't uh, reorganized my life. Although, actually, now that you mention it, I did make a an effort to sort of reorganize my clothes closet recently. And it did feel therapeutic. <laughs> maybe, maybe it is therapeutic. Some, something there. Yeah. It diverts you. It takes you out of your, your head. And you, you, when you do something, even that minor you know, reorganizing a closet you are taking charge of your life and it's the helplessness that people feel when their candidate loses or their cause is defeated it's a sense of impotence and so when you do something you automatically are regaining a form of confidence isn't that interesting yeah i, I hadn't thought about it that way but now that you put it that way i think you're on to something there well this is my guess- coping mechanism i think that idleness and here's my advice to the people who are grieving. Yeah. 
I always said to my daughter, Martha, uh, the, the greatest canker in life is idleness, is, is sitting around uh, dwelling on your own pains or, or, or your losses. That begets ennui, and ennui begets depression, and pretty soon we are unfit for human company. It's really important to avoid uh, stewing in your own sadness or bitterness uh, on occasions of great defeat because this will have a compounding effect on your character. It's funny because it's so easy to stew, though. You open up your laptop and there's the news. And we're all watching Donald Trump form an administration that is, again, maybe making some people happy. But I know it's very distressing to a lot of people. And I thought, you know, I don't have to follow every single nuance of this. It ain't going to change if I do or don't. If I bury my head a little bit this week and next and, I don't know, maybe the next four years, um, maybe maybe that'll get me through it a lot better without punishing myself. I'm not convinced that's the right way to go, but there's a little bit of that in me right now. I would avoid escape into in, into mere private life. Uh, I think that that's also a, a dangerous thing to have happen. You know, Aristotle said, "He who avoids the polis is either a beast or a god." And and his notion was that a civic man is always engaged at some level, uh, even in times of great disappointment. But I should try to cheer you up. Uh, uh, This is a system that Madison created. Uh, It works. The people have spoken. Uh, The election was not ambiguous. Uh, The the people of the United States were apparently frustrated by the way things were, and they made that uh, a very clear sign. It was a sign of no confidence to the established ways of doing things. Uh, It's it's sort of breathtaking to watch our democratic system work because you, you, you don't take you don't catch your breath when it works as you predict. It it only really is magnificent when it works in ways you could never predict. Yeah. Well, we talked about this last week, but more people did vote for Hillary Clinton than Donald Trump. Over a million people more voted for Hillary than Donald Trump. So so now possibly people- time for a constitutional amendment. Yeah. Here is a story in the news today. Following Donald Trump's victory, the University of Virginia president. Are you happy to know that the university you founded is still not only alive and well, but considered one of our great universities? I couldn't be happier. You know, that was one of the three things for which I wish to be remembered. The Declaration of Independence, the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, and then the capstone of my life, the University of Virginia at Charlottesville. So I I couldn't be happier to hear that they are still a strong institution. The president, Teresa Sullivan of the University of Virginia, sent an email after the election urging students to remember their own responsibility in the world. Sullivan wrote, quote, by coincidence, on this exact day, 191 years ago, November 9th, 1825, in the first year of classes at the University of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson wrote to a friend that University of Virginia students are, quote, not of ordinary significance only. They are exactly the persons who are to succeed to the government of our country and to rule its future enmities, its friendships and its fortunes. Close quotes. She said, I encourage today's UVA students to embrace that responsibility. Well, over 500 Students and faculty members have sent a letter to the university president protesting her use of you as a sort of moral exemplar. She said, or the protesters said, that since you owned slaves and things like that, 
that it's inappropriate to use you as somebody to look up to. Oh, my. That's the sort of freedom of thought that we had in mind. Uh, I said the University of Virginia would be a a sanctuary for freedom of expression, and and there would be no censoring. This would be a place of um, the unlimited freedom of the human mind. And so I suppose I have to accept that as as an example of when freedom of expression damages somebody, but it's still um, legal and, and still must be cherished in our in our republic, I think that it, they might want to consider transferring to some <laughs> other institution because, uh, I mean, I'm serious about this. If they feel this strongly, they should know that slaves built the university. Uh, the, the land was grubbed. The trees were removed by slave labor. The bricks were baked by slaves. The buildings were constructed by slaves. Slaves tended the, uh, the custodial services, kept the fireplaces and all the buildings going. If if they object to my status as a as a slaveholder, uh, they should see that in 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 every direction around them are the fruits of that uh, terrible system of economics and human oppression. And I would think that the, the just being in such an atmosphere would be oppressive to them. Well, a lot of us have wondered if they didn't realize that Thomas Jefferson was the founder of the University of Virginia and that he was a slaveholder. That can't be news to them. So I'm uh, maybe their protest is a little hollow. I don't know that they hate the school, but they just don't think the university president should hold you up as an example. Um, and I don't know if that's a distinction with a great difference or not. Their their letter also said, other memorable Jefferson quotes include blacks are inferior to whites in the endowments of body and mind and as incapable as children of taking care of themselves. So that's the sort of thing that's got them all upset. I wish they would just read the quotation from the letter that I wrote about the opening of the University of Virginia. In other words, if we could just keep it on that text, because in that text I said that this institution, I could see from the first students who came there, was going to be a nursery of civic leadership. The people from here would be governors and senators and maybe presidents of the United States. But whatever they did, they would serve their communities and be leaders, that this would be a a training ground for a new generation of Virginia leadership, empowering young people to um, achieve their dreams, whatever they might be. If they would focus on that, which I think was the point of the president of the university's letter, uh, they might be less grumpy. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, the one thing that we just can't get our heads around today is that you know, this this business of owning slaves and, for that matter, being one of the founding fathers. It's just a contradiction that's hard for us to comprehend. So while you may be right, I, I, I certainly understand why anybody scratches their head on this issue. Well, scratching one's head is different from scratching my head off of Mount Rushmore. You know, there are there are every generation has a right to examine the past and and, and make its own judgments of history. That's essential. And I never defended the ownership of slaves. I I knew that this would be a blot on my reputation. That's a blot on the history of the United States. I I couldn't quite extricate myself from the system of slavery, but but I knew that it was wrong. And I knew that it, it, it made me seem to be a hypocrite, but you have to take the whole man theory you have to you have to look at the whole achievement i wrote the declaration of independence i i I created one of the world's great universities 
I kept the United States at peace. I, I reduced the national debt. I bought the Louisiana territory. I sent Lewis and Clark to the West Coast, giving you your your, your favorite national birth story. You, you need to realize that no human being could stand up under a, a withering puritanical set of righteousness that every human being has things that are not uh, honorable, things that don't belong in the light, and that if this is your goal, is to discredit the, those who have achieved mighty things in the past, it's an easy game, but it doesn't exactly leave you in a world of optimism. You need to write a letter back to the university student newspaper, which published the remarks by the president, and say, hey, now, wait a minute, and say some of that stuff you just said. That that might set them up. Well, you know, I'm, I'm an old man, and I'm sure that I can survive. And since, you know, the first class that matriculated back in 1825, um, <laughs> within weeks of the institution of this great new university, there was a student drinking thing and a, a town riot, and we uh, the students had to be expelled. And I, I actually came down the mountain. I was a very elderly man by now, could barely ride. But I came down the mountain to the campus, to the, to the academical village, and, and sat in front of those students, and I wept. I wept for my dream, you know, oh. that this place would be this this platform for human dignity and leadership and the, the great curiosity of the of, of the human character and mind. And then suddenly, it's just a town gown drinking, fisticuffs, eye gouging sort of moment. Birth, I suppose, growing pains, you could say. But it 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 really made it hurt my feelings to think that this institution could, in some sense, be a routine human institution. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of uh, cheered by that. I mean, in so in some ways, over 200 years, campus life hasn't changed. Young people are young people. They always have been. They always will be. Um, they're capable of great things. But, yeah, you get a bunch of them together on campus, out on the quad, and they start drinking, start mixing it up. That's <laughs> that, that's what we do now. You should go to Southern Illinois University. Oh, boy. <laughs> we had fun there. Well, I would just urge your generation to... Uh, to, to consider being a little more charitable to the past. And I, th- I think that the students that have written such a letter don't have a very strong understanding of the history of the United States. And one of the things that seems so prevalent in your time is that people seem to shop for things to be outraged by. They scan the news, they look around the world of popular culture, and they try to find things to be outraged by. I wonder what that says about your time.